No lies. No distortions. Just the facts and the truth about issues that matter. Facts first with Christian Esqueda. Good evening, guys. Welcome to the, tonight's episode of Facts First. I'm your host, Christian Esguera. Tonight, our topic is very important because this week, Filipinos are going to mark 50 years since uh, former President Ferdinand Marcos Sr. placed the entire country under martial law. That's 50 years ago uh, this week. So we're going to talk about this. But before that, I'd like to greet uh, some of our uh, avid viewers, uh, in particular, Mr. Isagani Jose, he uh, messaged me on Facebook uh, asking for a shout out. So I'd like to greet you and thank you very much for your continued support. And also I'd like to greet uh, a very good friend of mine, Mr. Abel Pineda, a very happy birthday. So, ingat kalage, okay, Abel. So, you might be wondering why I'm speaking in straight English now because our guest is a very special one. He is a veteran journalist who covered the Philippines for so long, in particular uh, the Marcos regime and of course the EDSA People Power Revolution, that pivotal moment in Philippine history in 1986. So we're going to talk about this in the context of the 50th anniversary of uh, the Declaration of Martial Law and of course 36 years after the fall of the Marcoses in 1986. Another Marcos, the son of the late dictator, is now the president of the Philippines. How is that? Okay. I'd like to introduce to you a very special guest. Uh, he's a veteran journalist, Mr. Lewis Simons. Okay. He is the uh, author of um, the book Worth Dying For and his newspaper series about the Marcos' hidden wealth in 1986 won the Pulitzer Prize. And he has an upcoming book about his life as a foreign correspondent to tell the truth, which will be out on November 15 this year. Uh, good evening uh, here in Manila and good morning there in Washington. Uh, sir, thank you for joining us uh, tonight on Facts First. Thank you, Christian. Good evening to you. Okay. How are you doing, sir? As well as one can do at this advanced stage. <laughs> okay, before we talk about the, the main issue uh, tonight, let's talk about your career as a, as a foreign correspondent. Uh, how many years uh, did you work as a foreign correspondent and how, how much of this career was spent covering the Philippines? Um, uh, I began in 1967 uh, covering the war in Vietnam uh, for the Associated Press. And, um, and continued essentially for the next 50 years to work and uh, travel and live pretty much in most, if not every country in Asia. And I began covering the Philippines while I was based in Kuala Lumpur in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when Ferdinand Marcos uh, was in his first term power, I became much more involved in the Philippines with the assassination of Ninoy Aquino. And from then on, through the people power uprising and the expulsion of the Marcos regime, I was although based in Tokyo at that point for the Knight Ritter chain and, and in particular the San Jose Mercury News in California, I was based in Tokyo, 
But nevertheless, I spent much more time in the Philippines than in Japan or anywhere else. Uh, it was for me a pivotal story that changed the Philippines forever and had an enormous impact around the world. Of course, that was also the height of the Cold War and the uh, the height of the communist insurgency in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world. But uh, in terms of, by way of comparison, what was the Philippines like at that time? And um, how different was the context of the Philippines compared to the, to the rest of Southeast Asia that you were also covering? Yeah, well, it was in, in, in other parts of, of the region, things were beginning to move. Uh, as I said to you, I was based in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, Malaysia was was just beginning to move. Uh, it was not directly affected by the war in Vietnam. And so uh, it, it, the economy was beginning to uh, move ahead. Singapore, uh, where I also had responsibility for AP, uh, was really beginning to take off under under Lee Kuan Yew, uh, and I call I call uh, Lee Kuan Yew my favorite dictator. Uh, he was uh, he was one of the few I think who uh, who managed to combine his dictatorial instincts with a uh, an honest and and clean record and and uh, benefited his people. Uh, I, I really have to say that the Philippines was lagging behind. Uh, and this was um, not not for me, leaving me out of it completely, but uh, for uh, for Americans in general, uh, this was disappointing. Uh, the Philippines, of course, was was terribly damaged. Uh, by by the war, uh, World War II, mm -hmm. and it was expected that with U.S. assistance and all its natural resources and the natural gifts of its people, English language, all the rest of it, that the Philippines was going to do extremely well and, and would probably lead Southeast Asia. But instead, it was becoming the sick man uh, of Asia and, and a name that has uh, stuck far too long. So uh, it was, it, it was, I say, disappointing in that sense. However, I, I, I have to mention that for me personally, as a journalist and a, as just as a, as a human being, uh, the people I met, the Filipinos I met, were wonderful, and. Mm -hmm. And and I, I although I, I I'd always I'd been trained as a journalist to to keep myself apart from the stories and the people I covered, I couldn't really help myself. Uh, and to to this day, uh, I I have a very warm place in my heart for for Filipinos. Okay, there's an interesting uh, point that you mentioned earlier that Lee Kuan Yew was your favorite dictator. Mm. How about Ferdinand Marcos? <laughs> Not, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> I, look. This is uh, th these were these were two very very different people. I, I, certainly, they overlapped in their in their sense of themselves, their their senses of self importance. 
they certainly overlapped. But frankly, in from my observation, and I I, I only had a one-on-one -on -one interview with with Ferdinand Marcos once. I interviewed Lee Kuan Yew and met him half a dozen times over the years. So I, I certainly have a better sense of him, but he was a brilliant man. And he used his intellectual prowess to improve the lives of his people. Now, I have to say that in the very earliest days toward the end of the Vietnam War and the first few years of, of post-war development, what Lee had in mind for Singapore and for Singaporeans was not necessarily welcomed by them. There were lots of Singaporeans, particularly the intelligentsia, the uh, English educated, uh, the westernized uh, Singaporeans who did not welcome Lee's uh, sense of what he wanted to do with them and their country. And people would, would complain all the time uh, about it. But uh, it, it's hard to say, uh, particularly when one is talking about another country, not one's own country, not one's own self, but Mm. I think in, in the case of Singapore, father knew best, and uh, he, I think the results, the results speak for themselves. Is, is Singapore completely free today? No, it is not. The press is controlled, uh, mm. and there are regulations that uh, boggle the mind. Nevertheless, the standard of living has, uh, is, is one of the best in the world, not just in Southeast mm. Asia. This did not happen in in the Philippines, uh, Marcos, he may have been a, he may have been Lee's equal intellectually. I don't know, but he he did he served himself first. He served his family first, and that is something that Lee Kuan Yew did not do. That's mm -hmm. that's I think the heart of the difference. Okay, but uh, but of course, uh, to be fair to um, to Marcos and the Philippines, we're also talking here of two different contexts. Uh, I mean, the Philippines and uh, and Singapore. The, the, the Philippines being an archipelago, the Singapore being a small city-state. So this these can also be factors in terms of how one did not develop as fast as the other, perhaps. Of course, the, the population was, was quite different also. You mentioned that you had a one-on-one -on -one interview with Ferdinand Marcos. When was this and how was it? That would have been 1969. I was the AP bureau chief for Malaysia and Singapore. And I came to the uh, Philippines specifically to interview the president. AP did have a bureau uh, in Manila and a full-time uh, correspondent, but for, I guess because of personal reasons, I really, I really can't recall, <laughs> it's been a very long time. <laughs> but, uh, I I was asked to uh, to go over to Manila and and interview him. Um, one thing uh, that immediately that stuck with me is is he. Uh, we were in his office, and I I walked in. My wife was with me. We walked in, and the room was empty. He was not there. And then he came in from a side door. Uh, to the right side of, of this very large, uh, I guess it was teak desk. Mm -hmm. And as he walked in, uh, I could see that he was considerably shorter than I. I'm not a tall person. I'm five foot nine. 
but I, I guessed he was around five foot six. Mm -hmm. And and then suddenly he was towering over me. And I went and then I realized that he had stepped up onto a platform and his desk was on a platform. So for the the entire period of the interview, he was looking down at me. I think it was a, a clever little psychological trick that he played on on people who came to see him. He seemed to be sensitive about his uh, his height. He was a good looking man. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he was uh, fit. Mm -hmm. uh, you could see that he was wearing a barang tagalog, and you could see that he was very muscular. Uh, he was bright. He was ill at ease being interviewed. Uh, I have to say, to just to flash back on on Lee Kuan Yew, Lee Kuan Yew uh, was never happy being interviewed by foreign correspondents because he couldn't really control them. So he. He was uh, unpleasant. Marcos was not particularly unpleasant, but he was ill at ease. He was uncomfortable. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I can't remember uh, the details of of the interview. Uh, suffice to say that it was uh, it was not it was not uh, particularly uh, revealing of anything. He didn't want he didn't want to get too deeply into. Uh, his, his affairs, his, his plans. He was articulate, he spoke very well, but limited himself uh, as to the scope of, the, of what he wanted to discuss. Hmm. That was toward the end of his first term, but at that time, uh, did you also have an inkling that um, martial law might be um, on the table for him, or that I, he might I, be doing something quite drastic in the coming I, I, years? To be to be honest, I I did not have that kind of, uh, of foresight. Uh, I suppose if if one had been uh, steeped in Southeast Asian politics at that point, and I was not, one might have foreseen something about to happen. But uh, I was uh, I was twenty six, twenty seven years old. I was a kid. I had my experience at that point was one year of covering combat in Vietnam, a few months of, of covering uh, Malaysia, where not much was happening. It was it was at peace with itself and its neighbors. So coming down to Manila and and interviewing the president um, didn't really. I, I was not really in a position to make that kind of judgment. Okay. But uh, for your book, uh, Worth Dying For, which came out when? 87, right? 1987? Yes. Okay. Much of the reporting happened uh, between the time Nina Aquino was assassinated in 83 and the fall of the Marcoses during the EDSA People Power Revolution in 1986. That's when I understand you spent most of your time covering the Philippines. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. Right. Oh, so, so, so how was the situation then? And uh, how were foreign correspondents like you treated at that time? Especially during uh, when the Philippines was still very much under martial law, technically, because that was lifted in 81. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe uh, excuse me, Maybe I, I ought to give you a little uh, sort of set the scene for you uh, as to how I became involved. Uh, I At that point, I had uh, already moved on from AP to the Washington Post and I was their correspondent in uh, in India and Southeast Asia for for quite some time. I was uh, far more experienced than I had been when I uh, 
when I first came to Manila and, and interviewed Ferdinand Marcos. And I was, my wife and I and our two little girls uh, at that time were, uh, we were in San Jose uh, in California on our way to the East Coast where our families lived, stopped off in, uh, to see our ed my editors. And I was uh, in my editor's office when the AP printer started clanging frantically and a bulletin came across saying Ninoy Aquino had been assassinated in Manila at the airport. And I, uh, I said to the editor, I'm leaving now, I'm going to Manila. I deserted my wife and kids right there and, and took off. Now, it was, it was clear to me by then, I was much more experienced and understood that uh, this, was, this was big news. This was a huge story. And by, by the time I, whatever it was, 18 hours or so, 16 hours that it took for me to fly from San Francisco to Manila, the, the rumors were wild all over Manila that this had been a uh, set up by the government that Marcos had to be involved, that General Vare had to be involved. And the, the, the place was just swarming with correspondence, everybody looking for the same story. So this is kind of um, uh, a, maybe an advanced class in journalism, but- uh, <laughs> Go ahead, sir. We appreciate that. <laughs> uh, uh, a, there I was having to cover a major breaking story, a story that was evolved, just spinning out of control, not, not day by day, but hour by hour. And at the same time, uh, I, I began hearing from Filipinos, some of whom I knew for years, some of whom I was meeting for the first time, people in influential positions, I began hearing stories of dollar salting, hidden wealth, investments by the Marcoses and their cronies in the United States, in Europe, in the Caribbean, in Australia. And this was, I, I knew uh, that there were other journalists over the years, both Filipinos and foreigners who had attempted to penetrate that story, but nobody had done it with any success. Nobody had mm -hmm. been able to do it. So, while I'm covering, while I'm covering the breaking news, I'm beginning to collect information of the kind I just told you about. Yeah. And after I don't know six months, perhaps, uh, I had a lot of material, specific buildings that Imelda Marcos had purchased allegedly, and uh, properties they owned, ways that they were hiding money out of the country, ways that they were moving money out of the country, that sort of thing. And I, I collected it all in a lengthy, lengthy uh, memo pages that I sent to my editor uh, in San Jose. And I said, look, uh, th this, this is really the story that we should be covering. Everybody else is completely uh, wrapped up in, in the, uh, the investigation into the murder and so forth. 
we are in we meaning this medium-sized newspaper in california are in a position where we don't have to worry about the breaking news we can leave that to the new york Timeses and the washington Posts and the ap's and so forth and we can spend our time doing this story that underlies perhaps most of the philippines problems and so, uh, mm-hmm. sorry go ahead yeah, so that laid the foundation for your book in 87, exactly. Worth Dying For. Exactly. And of course, the, the title, um, it's not hard to guess, that was inspired by that uh, speech or statement coming from Nino Aquino. But before I ask uh, in detail about the, the book, the yeah. process uh, involved there, uh, for for, the, for today's generation, because you also have to understand in the Philippines, there's so much disinformation. Um, those who are spreading lies and disinformation in favor of the Marcoses are exploiting the idea that today's generation are too young to remember the events that happened in 83, in 86. That's why it's very good that we have you tonight. So the assassination itself, how big really was that in terms, uh, in the eyes of the world, the assassination of Nino Aquino in 83? And somehow did it surprise you that the fall of Marcos happened three years later, not sooner? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the news. I. I you. You asked me about uh, how. How. How the news. How, how big was it? Uh, yeah. For example, for reference, the the nine eleven attacks. That was such a big story in two thousand and one. But in yeah. this case, in the context of the world at that time, how big was it? No, it did not. It, it, certainly, in America, you could not compare the two. Um, yeah. Just the arithmetic alone uh, is uh, is is so completely different, uh, the numbers. But uh, nevertheless, um, the Philippines and the United States, as, as everybody knows, ha- have a long and, and unique um, uh, relationship. I mean, the, the Philippines was the only real colony that the United States ever had. And uh, Filipinos came to, uh, came to America as immigrants, uh, they served in the Navy and so forth. So there's, and, and there are large communities of, uh, of Filipino expats across America, most particularly in the San Francisco Bay area. And that's where the, uh, the Mercury News had its largest readership. So uh, I, I think, you know, if, if I had been working for uh, a, a newspaper, say, in the heartland of Chicago, perhaps, or Texas, I don't know, uh, they, it might not have had that, that same impact. But the editors, my editors, saw that this, was, that this was essential and crucial. So it was a huge story on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And my, my investigative work was splashed across the uh, front page of the paper uh, regularly. And um, so, okay, now we're, we're, where were we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the second part, the second question, basically, um, the fact that it happened three years later, the fall of Marcos after the assassination, somehow yeah. uh, people were thinking, should it, it have come sooner? Okay, should it have? Yes. Let's, let's leap forward uh, a couple of decades and, and switch countries. Here we are in the United States now facing, uh, in some ways, a similar situation in which a former president has been accused of all kinds of corrupt activities. Mm. And investigations are going on, newspapers and television and all the other new media are reporting on this continuously around the clock. And yet it's moving very, very, very slowly. 
And three years after uh, uh, after Trump leaves office, will this still be going on? It may very well. It may very well. So, you know, he, you had a situation in the Philippines at that time where you had a very strong president, strong in the sense of his powers, his, his legalistic powers. Of course, physically, he was deteriorating and uh, those around him were were worried about that. That's probably what really underlay the assassination of Aquino, the fear that they would uh, that Marcos would die in office and, and then what. But he still had the ability through his proxies to hold things back. And mm. you will, uh, none of this is really news to people like you, but maybe to the younger generation of Filipinos that you, you ask about, uh, you, you would see in the reporting and you, you will find in my book worth dying for that, that, uh, he, Marcos would, would call various judges and lawyers and investigators and powerful and wealthy people to his office and to his living quarters in Malacanang and, uh, and tell them, lay off, step back, take it easy. I know how to, uh, how I have a quote. I remember it vividly. I know how to reciprocate. And, you know, that that's very effective. So was I was I surprised that it was held off for three years? No, just disappointed. Okay. You might also be surprised, but but uh, today his loyalists, his supporters are even disputing disputing the fact that he was a dictator. For the record, coming from someone who actually covered the Philippines extensively, especially during that period in our history, was he a dictator? Pardon yes. me for asking the obvious. Yes, yes, and yes. Of course. Okay. Of okay. course. Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> which uh, is a which is a proper segue to, to, to my next question regarding your groundbreaking uh, newspaper series, which won the Pulitzer Award. Mm. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the Pulitzer, that's the, uh, I think it's the most important uh, journalism award, okay, uh, for, for, for any journalists. So, uh, you said that the foundation was laid, so basically you prepared as early as uh, 1983 when you started hearing about uh, the, the hidden wealth, right? But, right. but but how difficult was it to actually gather information, evidence, and um, talk to us about the breakthrough also in the impact of that report? Right. So it turned out that what I was gathering in Manila uh, when I would go to these morning coffee clutches and breakfast with various politicians and business people. What I was gathering was what you know as chismis. It was gossip. And um, I could not prove any of it. I did whatever I could to try to get to records in the Philippines, government records, bank records, so forth. No success. So it became obvious to me and to my editors that the only way we were going to move ahead was to look for evidence in the United States, which was a good thing in the sense that uh, many of the properties that we believed uh, Imelda and Ferdinand owned were in places like New York, San Francisco, uh, and so forth. So uh, one of my colleagues uh, in San Jose, Pete Carey, uh, one of, honestly, one of the world's better investigators uh, was assigned to follow up on the hints, the, the chismis, if you will, that I had. Uh, <laughs> am I pronouncing that right? Chismis? Chismis? 
Yeah. Rumors, rumors. Yeah. And he did. Chatter. Yeah. Uh, Pete was one of the early comers to um, to computerize investigating by journalists. Prior to to him, uh, people did what I had always done, and that is use our shoe leather, knock on doors, uh, mm-hmm. go back in uh, in into libraries, uh, morgues as they call them in newspapers. But uh, Pete was a, 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 a even even then in the early '80s a computer whiz, and he found a a real estate program that was not meant for what he wanted it uh, how, uh, how to use it, but it was meant for real estate uh, investors and developers. And he used that to track down the properties and the papers behind the properties that we were discussing that we we, we mm. believed we knew about. And he finally, when he had all of his ducks in a row uh, on his screen, he left for New York and uh, there confronted the lawyers for the Marcoses. There were a pair of of uh, brothers in New York City who had been investing for the Marcoses for decades, the Bernstein brothers, mm, and, yeah, and so forth. And uh, and then and then finally, uh, as th- this investigation, by the way, took a year, uh, something that most newspapers back then would would be loath to do. It cost an awful lot of money. It took us, uh, Pete and I, out of uh, circulation. Uh, and then toward the end, we uh, uh, the editors added uh, a young lady by the name of Catherine Ellison, who was a local San Francisco-based reporter. And she became the door knocker to follow up. And uh, I remember uh, in particular her uh, her knocking on the door of the uh, the then mayor. Uh, oh God, what was his name? It's it's slipping my mind. Mayor of uh, Manila. Uh, oh, sorry. Okay, it's, it's old school knocking on the doors to get information yeah. interviews. You say here, this is what we've got. Here, here's here's. Here's the bank uh, records, you know. Here's the real estate records and the tax records and so on. And do you uh, do you admit it or deny it? Anyway, it, that, so finally we nailed down the whole package, and it ran for three days. It was uh, you know full double truck pages on the inside, uh, and uh, streaming headlines on the front pages, and it um, it made a it had a huge impact. Uh, at, at much more in the Philippines than in the United States, not surprisingly, because the newspapers, the news media in the Philippines back then were incapable and unable to report stories like this. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, a number of editors uh, of, of censored uh, newspapers went ahead and, uh, and did things uh, like they would run whole sections of, of a story and and then um, say, but of course we know this is not true. Uh, and, and, you know, the, so the point was made. And then the, uh, the opposition parties began uh, reprinting the whole series in pamphlets and dropping them from helicopters and small planes all over the archipelago. Mm-hmm. And, and, in, and in a variety of, of languages. So the word got out and the story the story did have uh, a, a great impact 
So so the crony, uh, members of the crony press here in the Philippines were doing some sort of damage control uh, they, to, they, to they counter the, the impact of your reporting. Yes, yes, that's, that is true. By the way, were you able to quantify uh, during your investigation into this, you and your team, were you able to quantify the Marcos loot or hidden wealth at that time? Yes. Uh, <laughs> How much was it? Yeah, I, the I, estimate. It, it it was it was several billion dollars. I I honestly I I've seen everything. I think up to ten billion dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. I I don't I don't really know. I I do recall. I I don't remember. It's, 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 uh, but I, I do recall uh, that the the underlying uh, method behind these uh, these illicit investments was was dollar salting as it, as it was called then, and it was estimated by Filipino economists that some thirty billion with a B dollars were taken out of the Philippine treasury and salted. Mm-hmm broad by the crony crowd and at the same time it was estimated by these economists that the philippine debt was 30 billion dollars coincidence maybe but it tells you something Mm. and of course the impact was there so so this one a pulitzer prize in 87 but but how long did the series run three days and then uh it it there were there were follow-up stories um the the investigation the government's investigation uh, into uh the assassination uh picked up steam and that that and then of course the the people power uh, uh happened yeah. in the streets and that began and I, I've got to say, when you, you asked earlier on, you know, how big was this story uh, of Ninoy's assassination? Did it, how did it compare with 9-11? Uh, it, that, that, it did not, as I said. But when, when Cory Aquino, when the elections were held, the fraudulent accounting was exposed, and Cory Aquino uh, was declared the winner, that, was a huge story all yes. around the world. It was, it was, it was a fairy tale. Uh, the, you know, for your younger, your younger viewers, that it was, it was really, it was really uh, the the good guys have have won. The 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 princess uh, has defeated the frog, uh, and the, the, you know the the U.S. Congress invited Mrs. Aquino. Just yeah. before a joint session, uh, it was a, she received standing ovations. It was an enormous, it was a feel-good story that everybody wanted to happen. Everybody would want that kind of a story to happen in their country. And it so rarely does. But there it happened in the Philippines. The aftermath is yeah. another story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about the aftermath. But uh, my yeah. apologies for not being uh, a bit clearer earlier. Uh, I wasn't really asking about... Uh, the the impact of the Nina assassination in connection directly with the let's say 9/11. I just wanted to to situate uh, the assassination in itself in its particular context. Now speaking of what happened after EDSA, indeed that was a fairy tale. The Philippines was a toast of the world, and it inspired other popular bloodless revolts uh, elsewhere in the in the world. 
that's how important, that's how big an impact it had at that time. Mind you, younger generation. Mm-hmm. But now, <laughs> how do you feel with the fact that 36 years after Filipinos ousted the dictator and his family, his son is now president? It's shocking. It's shocking. Uh, uh, I I can't say that uh, it, it it's it, it's completely without uh, it, that it's completely not understandable, but it it, it, is, it is understandable given the power uh, and the wealth of the Marcos family and uh, their long long experience in bringing in. Uh, experts from from other countries who know how to uh, how to play issues and how to confuse people and influence them. Uh, the the father did it, and so of course the son did it. The mother carries messages from the past to uh, to her son, if you will, and um, it, it's it's to me disappointing personally. I think we have going on right now in my country, in the United States, again, another similar situation. If you ask me, is it conceivable that a decade from now, 20 years from now, uh, Donald Trump Jr. could be elected president of the United States? Yes. Yes, we are we are going through, and, and this is not just the Philippines and or the United States. It's the whole world is going through a period of uh, social upheaval that is possibly unprecedented. I think it is largely due to uh, the communications revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in my day, the AP used to, the Associated Press used to boast that it had a deadline a minute. Now a minute is a very long time. And, and you know, every second is a, is, is a deadline. And it goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, uh, people, and people, everybody, everybody now is a reporter. Everybody now is a photographer. And, and so we're, we're swamped with information and we get to choose what kind of information we want. There's the experts. I'm an expert. You're an expert. Everybody's an expert, and 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 we get to express ourselves and we and make it look like professional, uh, in print or on a screen or uh, on the air. So the, we're we're going we're going through this revolution, I would call it, and uh, almost almost any result is conceivable as far as I can see. Yeah, that's true. Many different factors are involved or at play, no. But in this case, uh, I've been hearing this uh, this this sentiment that the fact that Filipinos, 36 years after we ousted the the dictator and his family, and 50 years or close to 50 years after he declared martial law all over the Philippines, the son of the dictator is the president. Others are saying that somehow that is a sad reflection on on our values as a nation, as a society, as Filipinos. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I, I, I do think it's fair. Um, to tell you the truth, uh, when this happened, when your election was concluded and, uh, and Ferdinand Jr. Was, was declared the winner, um, I, I wrote a bit 
saying that I thought this was this was a negative uh, and poor reflection on Filipinos, and a, and a number of Filipinos, uh, I, I, it seemed to be pretty clear that they were younger people, twenty somethings, maybe thirty somethings, who uh, responded and and attacked me and said I didn't understand that they had done everything in their power to see that the, it didn't turn out this way. And and they were they were outfoxed by uh, Marcos money, Marcos influence, and imported uh, influencers. Mm -hmm. uh, so the I think I, unfortunately nothing matters more than the result, and the result is this young fellow, youngish fellow now, uh, has has been uh, elected. And yes, there are people in uh, Filipinos, uh, many of them perhaps, uh, who are unhappy and, and wish it were otherwise. The same thing is true in the United States. Yeah. There are many Americans, uh, roughly half the population, who were very unhappy to have Donald Trump elected and are, and are, and are frothing at the mouth right now to have him uh, tried and sent to jail. But the result was and the result is so far he was elected president of the united states and that's the way it is that nothing yeah. counts more than the result okay by the way in, um in the case of uh the new president ferdinand uh, marcos jr have you met him and uh what do you think of him what were your impressions uh, no 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 i i i never met him uh i i was i was in a couple of rooms uh, with with him when he was there with his family, he was a, he was a, a boy. When I'm an old guy, you know, I've been around a long time. So uh, when I was in the Philippines uh, 30, 40 years ago, uh, he uh, he didn't have uh, much influence with, and I, I never had the opportunity to speak to him. I, I couldn't really discuss him. Okay, we're we're nearing the end of our discussion, but at this point, let's talk about the lessons of EDSA and uh, perhaps. As someone who saw it, uh, <laughs> the mm -hmm. evolution for better or for worse in that portion of uh, of our history. I mean, what, yeah. where, where, where do you think um, the errors happened after that fairy tale that you mentioned? 86, uh -huh. everyone was euphoric. Uh, every, everyone was, um, was looking at a fresh start. And then it didn't exactly go uphill from there. Yeah. Um I guess <laughs> I, I guess the answer is that uh, fairy tales are not real, and you in the Philippines uh, experienced something that very very few people ever ever do. Uh, you you set a an example for much of the world, Middle East, Eastern Europe. People power uh, revolutions, color revolutions were taking place all across the world, and for that uh, you deserve credit. and And I, I personally feel uh, just great respect and warmth for you as a people for for accomplishing that. Uh, it's just not the kind of thing that that can last. It can't last. So you're now you're now faced with a situation with a president who is uh, at least as unpopular as he is popular. I, I, I would assume that you're 
the population's uh, attitudes towards him are pretty much split down the middle the way they are in the United States. And uh, you're, you know, if, if enough young people, the people with energy, the people with commitment, the people who want change uh, can get themselves together and, uh, and organize and vote uh, and, and report themselves or through, through uh, professional journalists what's going on uh, and keep the story alive, you have a chance. Uh, if not, if if uh, if the younger generation uh, allows uh, allows events to get out of hand and to move ahead without them, if, for example, uh, uh, Ferdinand is found to never have committed, never have been a dictatorship, never have committed the murders and the disappearances that uh, that uh, the world knows he did. Uh, if he gets away with that in in history, uh, you'll have lost. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Lewis uh, Simons, for joining us tonight. And thank again, you. I think uh, people were asking where they could uh, buy your old book, To Die For. Uh, worth Dying For, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> worth Dying For. Is that available online? Uh, well, there are, uh, there are a few. It's out of print. But the good news uh, is if anybody is interested, in about six months, it will be re-released. This time in paperback, and um, it'll be it'll be available uh, through Amazon and I suppose other outlets. Okay. As, will, and, as will my new book. <laughs> yeah, your new book is uh, to tell the truth. My yeah. life as a foreign correspondent, which will be available starting November fifteen. Right. right? Right. I'd like to invite you before that because I want to talk about uh, I want to uh, to see your perspective as a very as a veteran journalist on how journalism has changed a lot, perhaps for for better for worse over the past several years. Well, Wonderful. thank you very much, Mr. Lewis Simons, and uh, you. see you again. Good. In our in the second part of our interview. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, that was uh, Mr. Lewis Simons. Uh, baka nakikita niyo po yung libro niya, no? Uh, luma na, pero I think yung mga nag-hunt na mga libro sa, ano, sa book sale, meron pang kopya dyan eh. I check kanina sa Amazon, meron pang ilang kopya kung gusto niyo umorder. Okay, bago tayo magpatuloy, no? meron akong gusto i-discuss sa inyo. Uh, basahin ko lang ilan sa mga messages dito. Ayan. Sabi ni Noel Francia, kindly greet, happy birthday. Uh, his wife, Francia Nunez, happy birthday uh, from New Jersey sa US. Ayan, binabati ka ng asawa mo. Happy birthday po sa inyo. Tapos, eto si John Roy Beleno. Hindi raw po siya troll. Wala mo na kung sinabing troll ka. I'm an FB poet in Ilocano. Following you as one of the public intellectuals to to beat. Naks naman. Grabe. Ayan. Tapos, eto is Mr. Louis Simon shocked at how quickly our nation forgets history. Yan ang pag-uusapan natin ngayon dito sa second part natin. Meron tayong truth bumps, no? Especially malapit na po yung ano, 50th anniversary ng declaration ng martial law. Okay? Uh, Mag-ano muna tayo? OBB. Okay, para po sa ating truth bombs ngayong gabing ito, no? So, 
Ngayong linggo po, gugunitin natin yung uh, 50 taon mula nung ipasailalim ni Ferdinand Marcos Sr. ang buong Pilipinas sa ilalim po ng martial law. Okay? Ako consider po ito na isa sa darkest periods in our history. Ang medyo hindi po lang po natin masyadong uh, matanggap ngayon. Kumbaga pati yung portion ng history natin na yun, pilit na binubura o dinidistort nung mga nagpapakalat po na kung ano-anong mga maling detalye ngayong kasalukuyang henerasyon. Yun po yung nakakatakot. No? Ini-airbrush, binubura po yung kasaysayan. Kasi kung ganun po ano mangyari po sa atin bilang bansa. So dapat po siguro mas pag-igihin natin yung pagtuturo at pagpapaalala sa ating mga kababayan doon po sa mga nangyari nung nakaraan. Okay? Paraya po kasi ngayon na nakakagulat, no? Dahil sinasabi nila mismo, pati mga basic facts that have been established long ago. Facts po, no? Ito po yung objective facts. Pwede nyo po i-check. Makikita nyo po sa records. For example, diktador ba si Ferdinand Marcos Sr.? Opo. Kanina, tinanong natin sa ating panayam. Ang sagot ng ating panahuin, isang uh, veteran journalist na nag-cover po ng Marcos sa uh, regime ng matagal na panahon. Yes, yes, and yes. Yan po dapat, hindi na po dinidispute, no? Um... Sinasabi nila, nakabuti naman daw yung batas militar, siguro sa ilang tao, pero dun sa karamihan o sa mas nakararaming Pilipino, hindi po. Okay? Ito po yung mga susuriin natin. Kasi for example, 1986, ah, tayo masasaya, di ba? So, sabi nga ng ating panahuin, fairy tale. Minsan kasi nagkakaroon tayo ng problema after ng isang pivotal moment in our history, parang hindi natin napupulot yung lessons o yung mga aral mula doon sa pangyayaring yun sa kasaysayan for us to move forward. Kaya minsan, iniisip ko, ito po yung gusto kong tutukan sa ating, ano, sa ating truth bombs ngayong gabi. Ano lang ba tayo forgetful? Makakalimutin? Number two, forgiving? Number three, apathetic? Walang pakialam? O yung worse yung pang-apat po, pathetic? Kasi sa totoo lang, ordinarily, mag-iisip tayo dapat, di ba? Bakit sa kabila ng record when it comes to human rights, sa hidden wealth, sa ill-gotten wealth na isang pamilya, yung mga butanting Pilipino, 36, after, 36 years after ousting that, that, that family from power, the president, then, in 86 EDSA, i-elect yung presidente, i-elect na presidente yung anak ng dating diktador. Doon pa lang, ordinarily, mapapakamot na tayo. No? Pero yun na po yung resulta. No? Maraming pong dahilan uh, that would point to uh, the victory in May 2022 of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Again, to be fair, hindi po natin siya tinatawag na diktador. Dahil hindi naman siya talaga diktador. No? Ngayon, kung magiging diktador siya, that's another story. Pero I don't think so. I don't think that would happen. Gusto ko pong puntuhin dito. Saan ba tayo nagkamali? Bakit parang ang bilis makalimot ng mga Pilipino? Yung forgiving natin, pagiging forgiving natin, I think that's a given. Pero bakit ang bilis natin makalimot? Siguro dahil yung EDSA mismo, nagkaroon tayo ng mga failings after that. Institutionally, we failed to strengthen certain institutions that should have been strengthened afterward. Political parties, for example, hindi natin pinalakas. Of course, you could also understand the failings of the first Aquino administration, yung kay Cory Aquino. Dahil yung time na yon hindi niya hawak yung militar eh. Makikita nyo, pag pinag-aralan nyo po yung kasaysayan, nandun, siya, nandun po yung constant threat or insecurity 
At katunayan, di ba, sang katutak po yung mga kudita na nangyari sa ilalim na kanyang pamamahala. So, nandoon yung ano, nandoon yung insecurity in terms of leadership, nandoon yung samot-saring problema in terms of putting the house in order after 21 years of Marcos regime. Tapos tinatanong ng iba, kung talaga nagkasala, bakit hindi niya kakulong? Ilang beses po natin sinasagot yan. Tapos sinasabi, wala naman doon, napatunay na ill-gotten wealth. Yun pa lang po, yung mga bagay na yun, dapat binabalikan natin yung mga napatunayan sa kasaysayan tsaka sa official records po ng ating pamahalaan. No? So yung ill-gotten wealth, tulad ng binanggit ko po dati, yan po yung mismong terminolohiya na ginamit po noong no 2003 Supreme Court decision. Pero bakit ngayon, patuloy pa rin po nating dinideny, no? So, inga po, ano ba, yung, ano ba yung problema sa atin? Forgetful ba? Forgiving? Apathetic? O pathetic lang? Yan po yung pag-iisipan nating mabuti. Kasi hindi tayo uusad bilang isang bansa kung hindi natin ina-acknowledge yung mga kamali anong kasaysayan. At kung gagawin natin, magpapabiktima lang tayo doon sa mga taong gusumburahin yung kasaysayan. Again, we're not disputing the victory of uh, President Marcos Jr. 31 million Filipinos voted him ofi- uh, as president officially. So, napakalaking mandato po nun. Pero sana, sa paggunita natin ng 50 years ng martial law declaration, sana wag nating burahin sa kasaysayan yung mga nangyari. Tulad nga po sinabi ni ano ni dating PCGG chairman, dating uh, Senate President Huvito Salonga. Sabi niya, national reconciliation without truth and justice would be a mockery. Kasi ngayon, masarap pakinggan. Hindi, magkaisa na lang tayo, kalimutan na, pass is pass. Nadidinig natin yan madalas, no? Eh, pero kung may mga taong hanggang ngayon hindi tinatanggap at pilit na pinapabango, yung mga mabantot na bahagi ng ating kasaysayan, anong klaseng unity po o pagkakaisa yung, yung matatamu natin. No? Kaya paulit-ulit lang po yan. So makikita nyo, nagiging cyclical yung, ano, uh, cyclical yung, yung, yung nagiging problema natin sa ating kasaysayan. Yung sa mga nagtatanong po doon sa estimate, kanina kasi tinanong ko yung ating panahuin, magkano ba yung estimate ng Marcos Lute based sa kanilang investigation sa kanilang Pulitzer Prize winning uh, newspaper series. Sabi niya, mga nasa ano, no? 10 billion. Yung 10 billion uh, uh, dollar estimate na yun po, yun po ay uh, nandito sa, sa aklat na ito. Ayan. Presidential plunder ni Mr. Jovito Salonga. Ang sabi niya, yung estimate na yun, nakuha niya, base doon sa mga nabasa niya intelligence report coming from the United States. So doon daw nabuo yung, ano, yung estimate na yun. Pero base sa ating mga panayam, doon sa ibang mga... Uh, nakakaalam din, katulad ni dating PCGG Commissioner Ruben Caranza, mahirap din talaga daw estimate. No? Pwede mas marami pa, pwede mas konti pa. Kasi nga po, hindi po ganun kadali na habulin yung, yung mga nakaw na yaman o hidden wealth ng mga Marcoses. I suggest marami po mga libro tukol dun sa bahaging iyon ng ating kasaysayan. Isa po sa mga re-recommend kong basahin nyo ito po. Presidential Plunder ni Huvito Salonga. Nakadetalyo po niya kung gano'n po kahirap yung paghahabol at paghahanap ng uh, hidden wealth ng mga Marcoses during the early years or months of the Aquino administration, Korea Aquino administration. Noong time na yun, revolutionary government pa lang, di ba? Dahil hindi pa binubuo yung 1987 constitution. Pero noong time na yun, binuo na agad po yung Presidential Commission in Good Government. At originally kasi, ang binigay naman, uh, ang, ang inutos sa kanya ni 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 Cory Aquino, kay Jovito Salonga. Eh 
hanapin yung mga human rights violators panagutin at the same time habulin yung Marcos Ilgatin wealth. Pero sabi niya, masyado po yata mahirap yun. No? So magtayo na lang, kaya sinadjust niya na magtayo na lang ng Commission on Human Rights. Kaya yun po yung naitayo eventually. At nag-concentrate sila uh, doon sa pagkalap, doon sa paghahanap ng ill-gotten wealth sa PCGG. And of course, ngayon, 36 years later, pinag-uusapan natin ngayon, diba? dahil may ilang mga kongresista or may isang kongresista po, si Congressman na Benny Abante, ang proposal niya ay abolish na raw yung PCGG. Well, hindi po natin alam kung matutuloy iyon kasi pwede namang hindi siya i-abolish. Pwede pahinain na lang, di ba? Hindi bigyan ng sapat na pondo. Kasi pag nabasa niyo pong history ng PCGG, talagang ever since napakahirap. Kakaunting tao, kakaunting resources. And given the enormous resources of the Marcos family and their cronies, it was not definitely easy to recover the, the, the hidden wealth or the ill-gotten wealth. Kasi nakatago po eh sa iba't ibang mga bansa eh. Paano mo hahabulin ko yung resources mo limited? Ilan po sana ang ano, intindihin natin no. Hindi ko po dinidiscuss ito uh, dahil tulad na sinasabi ng mga trolls no. Eh ano kayo puro kayo dilawan, anti Marcos kayo. Subukan niyo po buksan yung pag-iisip niyo no. Hindi ko na po hindi na po ako mag-aapil doon sa mga trolls sa talagang nabayaran para mag-comment ako ano-anong wala sa hulog no. Pero yung po iba na yung siguro talagang fan na fan kayo ng mga Marcoses and I don't fault you for that no. Pero try to acknowledge yung ano yung yung mga facts sa ating kasaysayan and hindi natin ano we're not we're not judging you we're not judging you for for voting for for the for the son of Ferdinand Marcos Sr. ano na yun eh ano bagong yugto na po ito no at titingnan natin kung paano yung magiging pamamahala niya for all you know baka naman uh, he would prove his critics wrong no na talagang baka naman gumanda yung takbo ng Pilipinas under him let's see no baka naman mabawasan talaga yung palakasan yung rent seeking yung yung bata-bata system sa pamahalaan yung pag-abuso ng ilang mga malalaking negosyante sa 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 government contracts baka naman yun talaga matutukan niya diba let's see masyado pa maaga no wala pang first 100 days pero nga po wag naman tayong magbulag-bulagan doon sa kasaysayan kasi ang hirap pag binubura natin eh based on our convenience because that would reflect badly on us as a people no so tulad ng sinabi ko kanina ano ba tayo forgetful forgiving apathetic or simply pathetic Yan po yung pag-isipan natin at maraming maraming salamat po for joining us tonight.